Welcome to Give Theory a Chance. In this episode, Dr. Hannah McCann, a lecturer in cultural studies at the University of Melbourne and author of Queer Theory Now, joins us to read from Sarah Ahmed's 2010 Killing Joy, Feminism, and the History of Happiness. Hannah offers advice on assigning and reading Ahmed's work, walks us through Ahmed's rereading and reconceptualization of happiness, guides us through Ahmed's use of etymology and wordplay, and helps us understand the powerful concepts of the affect alien and feminist killjoy. As always, a link to the reading is included in the notes of this episode. So you chose to read some selections from Sarah Ahmed's article titled Killing Joy, Feminism and the History of Happiness. And this article was published in Science in 2010, and I'm including a link in the podcast notes for anyone following along. So just to get us started, why did you choose Sarah Ahmed and also why this particular reading? Yeah, so I think that when we're usually teaching a week on gender, uh, not just a whole course on gender, we usually go to Judith Butler as our default person, which is fantastic. And I really love Judith Butler, but it is also good to branch out. And I think that Ahmed is one of those people who offers feminist writing that students absolutely love. People really connect with it and it really speaks to a lot of the feminist sentiments that young people are expressing today. And she's kind of led that resurgence in some ways, which we can talk about later. Yeah, for sure. But so the article is actually a chapter from her book, The Promise of Happiness, which was also published in 2010. And I'd recommend that if anyone's really keen on this reading that they have a look at the whole book, The Promise of Happiness. It's got a lot of really interesting reflections on emotions and the history of those emotions and how we can critique them. So what she's really asking in this article, this chapter from the book, is how is happiness gendered? So it's just a really interesting topic to read about and and think about in a gendered way. So I think it's very relatable to people and there's a lot you can kind of sink your teeth into and think about in relation to your own life. What are the different classes that you might use this article in? So what she's really doing in this, and this is her method, is she's drawing from an interdisciplinary archive. So she's got a lot of philosophy in there. She's got feminist theory and feminist history, um, literary analysis, And this kind of interdisciplinary archive approach is very typical in media and communications, which she was based in at Goldsmiths at the time, but also gender studies and cultural studies. So as a method, it's very um, typical of that. But I think that the topic itself, happiness, means that it could easily be taught in a sociology classroom and not just in a gender week. So, you know, you could teach this in a week on affect, a week on moods and feelings or social norms. There's all kinds of different scenarios where you might use this in a course because of the topic of happiness. So if I was setting this, I've typically taught this in gender studies programs, but I would suggest setting excerpts of it for a second year class um, because it's quite long and perhaps a little bit dense in some parts or the full text for a, a later like third year course. One of the really useful things about this is that she's writing this as part of the kind of effective turn in theory, but she offers this really particular entry into affect that some scholars of affect would say isn't proper affect theory but at the same time you know she's offering this quite concrete understanding of affect that I think students can find really relatable and in my experience of teaching this her discussions of the feminist killjoy which we can talk about 
uh, spoiling the fun are really something that rings true for a lot of people's lives. So I think people find it a really useful understanding of affect in this very practical way, this very relatable way. Yeah, so I think there's a lot of different classes you could use this in. And actually, I suppose one other thing to say with that is you could even use it in a a later year course for research students, say in a even in a master's program or something, if someone was writing a thesis as a example of how to write this kind of interdisciplinary archival way. So as a kind of method, you could show that this is a a way to kind of write about things. I'm glad you brought up that this is such a useful entry into talking about affect because one of the things I've noticed is many of the scholars writing about affect do it in such a complicated way. It's hard to find a good article to share with a student who isn't fourth year or already entering grad school. It's just they're they're not out there as much as other areas of interest or other theoretical approaches. Yeah, and I think that there would be some maybe Deleuzeans, some people who have kind of stricter ideas of affect that would say, you know, this reading that Ahmed offers of affect is strictly about emotion rather than what a purist might think about affect. But at the same time, you know, she is talking about these kind of precognitive sensations and things that is a bit more kind of typical affect theory when she's talking about happiness. So she's not totally dismissing that philosophical tradition at all. And I think that it's just that some people get a little particular when things become really concrete when you're talking about philosophy, which is, you know, I think it's actually quite a feminist thing to do to say, actually, how does this apply to people's lives? Well, that seems like perfect timing to get into the article and and see what's exciting about it. So do you want to take us to the first excerpt that you're going to be reading, which I believe was on page 572? Yeah, sure. So this is right at the beginning of the article. And she says, when a happiness wish is deposited, a social norm becomes a social good. Feminists have shown how the happiness wish is deposited in certain places. Take feminist critiques of the figure of the happy housewife. Betty Friedan in The Feminine Mystique argues, in 1960, the problem that has no name burst like a boil through the image of the happy American housewife. In the television commercials, the pretty housewives still beamed over their foaming dishpans, but the actual unhappiness of the American housewife was suddenly being reported. The happy housewife is a fantasy figure that erases the signs of labor under the sign of happiness. The claim that women are happy and that this happiness is behind the work they do functions to justify gendered forms of labor, not as products of nature, law or duty, but as expressions of a collective wish and desire. Feminist histories thus offer a different angle on the history of happiness. Or perhaps feminist history teaches us that we need to give a history to unhappiness. The history of the word unhappy might teach us about the unhappiness of the history of happiness. In its earliest uses, unhappy meant causing misfortune or trouble. Only later did it come to mean miserable in lot or circumstances or wretched in mind. We can learn from the swiftness of translation between causing unhappiness and being described as unhappy. We must learn. So this seems like she's setting up the rest of the chapter or article. So what are the key things that she's doing right here? If you were guiding us through it, what are the key things that we should be picking up on at this point? So she's basically trying to interrupt this notion that happiness is a good thing. So that's an assumption that we have. We have all of these popular psychology books constantly coming out about how to be happy. We have things that we're barraged by, by our universities and other institutions, particularly in these difficult crisis periods where it's about being happy with what we have, 
you know, mindfulness is a key to happiness and so on. And she's just really setting this up to say, hey, hang on a minute. Is happiness a good thing necessarily? And in fact, haven't feminists this entire time been critiquing this assumption? And so it's a really fantastic way to interrupt that assumption. And it's fascinating to me that she brings in Betty Friedan because Betty Friedan is someone that will often come up at the beginning of a week on gender or a week on feminism as a key figure in feminist history in the USA. And so people are familiar with her usually. And she's saying, hey, look, look what Fredan was doing. Fredan was pointing out the unhappiness of the American housewife. And so she's hooking us into feminist history in this passage. And she's saying, let's take another look at feminist history or let's think about this again in terms of unhappiness instead of just perhaps seeing women's liberation as a path to happiness let's look at the actual critique of the places we've been put in where we're assumed that we should be happy about being a housewife and so on yeah it's such a profound little shift because it doesn't seem like a big move but then as you read the article you can see how that rereading sets the foundation for everything she does yeah and you know i think this is why this reading is so exciting is because perhaps when you first pick up this article you start thinking oh yeah happiness of course it's a good thing but also you know you might be aware of feminist history already and also be on board with that but then putting these two things together and using that to critique happiness is the really interesting thing that comes out of it one other question before we move on to the next section it seems significant i'm wondering what you make of it where she says in its earliest uses unhappy meant causing misfortune or trouble Hmm. only later did it come to mean miserable in lot or circumstance or wretched in mind so what's going on there what do you make of that Yeah, so it's something that comes up later in her paper, which is around how when you offer a feminist critique of a scene or a thing that we assume is fine, you become the source of unhappiness. So she's kind of setting that up here as well. Oh, okay. Where she's saying its earliest use is unhappy meant causing misfortune or trouble, which is the critique. And only later did it come to mean wretched in mind, like that person as actually, you know, the unhappiness is stuck to them, if that makes sense. So I think what this is doing is setting up that later point that she's making about how when you point out unhappiness, you become the source of unhappiness. Yeah, which makes sense to also the way that it could be read wretched of mind or miserable in a lot of circumstance that goes along with this pressure that you're talking about with the even in the face of crisis to find individual happiness to meditate or to read the book that says this is what's going to make you cheer up. Yeah, absolutely. Like it's a it's a task or it's, you know, and this is something she talks about further on in the paper as well, which is that it's a kind of responsibility to be happy in order to cause the happiness of others or the happiness of others depends on you. So that individual responsibility as a kind of social responsibility. Okay, we should move on because (laughs) with this reading, I think we could talk for 30 minutes to an hour on every single paragraph that you highlighted. So I'm (laughs) going to try not to interrupt too much. So where do we go after this one? So on page 580. Okay, so we're skipping ahead to the next section. Yeah, this is in a section called Affect Aliens, Alien Affects, which is a really nice thing she does a lot, which is play around with words and look at the etymology of words and how they've been used and do funny things with them that make us think about those words in different ways. So she says, when we feel pleasure from objects that are supposed to cause happiness, we are thus aligned. We are facing the right way. 
We become alienated when we do not experience pleasure from proximity to objects that are attributed as being good. The gap between the affective value of an object and how we experience an object can involve a range of affects, which are directed by the modes of explanation we offer to fill this gap. We can return to the example of the wedding day, imagined as the happiest day of your life before it actually happens. We might even happen upon that which is anticipated as causing unhappiness. Indeed, the might can hide a must. In order to preserve the happiness of all, you must happen upon the right things in the right way. This is how the promissory logics of happiness do more than make promises. To follow the paths of happiness is to inherit the elimination of the hap. Okay, so there's a there's a lot going on in that paragraph. <laughs> Sorry, so help me out. So what are the key parts? Because you can see, like you're pointing out with the title of this section, there's so much clever wordplay that she's engaged in here. So what are the key aspects? Yeah, so I should probably say for readers or for listeners who haven't read the article yet, when she says hap, it's something she explains earlier. She is talking about this idea of the etymology of that word hap um, as part of happiness as meaning fortune or happenstance. So she's really arguing we need to put the kind of hap and possibility back into happiness rather than the preordained narratives of happiness. So that's what she's also saying here. What's really fantastic is that it's quite a complicated beginning to this paragraph, but then she gives us a very concrete example of what she's talking about. So the wedding day. And it's a fantastic feminist interruption of this scene because there's a kind of blasphemy to this suggestion that it might not be the happiest day of your life. So there's obviously a history of feminist critiques of marriage, but this kind of goes deeper than that to question the happiness associated with it, which is a whole other thing, really. So it's not just about the institution, but it's about how you feel or how you're meant to feel on that day. And what's really interesting is that we can think about the implications of this, not just in terms of heterosexual women and the white heterosexual wedding, but the implication is for same-sex marriage too. So the expectation that you should be happy, for example, because you won what you fought for. You know, LGBT people fought for same-sex marriage and it was won. And then suddenly when you can do that, but it's perhaps not the happiest day of your life, you know, you're you're at odds with this narrative that you should be grateful that you won that thing. So she's really pointing out these narratives of happiness that we have that circulate in the social world that need critique, that need questioning to put that kind of hap or happenstance and possibility back into them. Okay. And so then that very first sentence that you read, which is saying when you get the pleasure you're supposed to, you're facing the right way. In a sense, it's just saying you're keeping the expectations moving along. You're keeping the flows going the way that's expected, right? So you're... Yes. Okay. So in those examples of the wedding day, you know, whether that's heterosexual or same-sex marriage, if you are extremely happy on this day that's meant to be the happiest day of your life, then, you know, you've done the right thing. You are not a pariah. <laughs> But if you're crying on your wedding day or you feel bad or you feel worried or you feel anything else that's not this narrative of happiness, then you failed and you are alienated from this expectation of how you're meant to feel. So that puts you in this kind of alienated position. Okay, perfect. I think the next section you have highlighted 
continues on this. So I'll, I'll hold my question. Continuing on 581. Yeah, so I'll just read this. There's um, actually two passages and I'll just read the first one. So she says, we cannot always close the gap between how we feel and how we think we should feel. To feel the gap might be to feel a sense of disappointment. Such disappointment can also involve an anxious narrative of self-doubt. Why am I not made happy by this? What is wrong with me? Or a narrative of rage where the object that is supposed to make us happy is attributed as the cause of disappointment. Your rage might be directed against the object that fails to deliver its promise or it may spill out toward those who promised you happiness through the elevation of some things as good. We become strangers or affect aliens in such moments. Okay, so that seems like it answers a lot of what she was setting up in the previous paragraph. So what do you see as the key element that she's building? I think that she's really explaining here what it means to be an affect alien. So this whole section. And it has absolutely huge implications for thinking through a gendered lens. So thinking about, say, the struggle that women might feel with parenting, this expectation that motherhood's meant to be this beautiful thing where you completely love your children and have kind of no negative feelings towards them. Um, the struggle to balance work and home life, even things like the kind of daily grind of sexist oppression. So thinking about this assumption that we used to have, you know, not that long ago, that cat calls were kind of attention that you should enjoy, that kind of thing. So she's really explaining what it means when we don't feel happy about you know, being a mother, having to balance all these things, having to deal with this daily sexism and so on, and explaining the anxiety of that and the rage of that, the disappointment, all those feelings that are actually really negative feelings that we feel even when we're supposed to feel happy. And of course, this is very gendered, her analysis, but it applies to everyone. And I'm sure that people can really relate to this in this crisis period of perhaps you're in a you know, particularly in the university sector. So you might be in a relatively stable position at work in, in the university, but, you know, you feel really unhappy because everything's awful in the sector. And it's like, why am I not made happy by this? What's wrong with me, right? So, you know, people in all kinds of circumstances can relate to this affect alien that she's describing. Yeah, and it seems so significant that she's pointing out you're in that gap, right? You're encountering the objects that's supposed to bring joy and it's not doing it. But then that anxiety or that rage can go these very different directions and do very different things. Yeah. So whether it's focus inward again on blaming the self and saying I'm the problem here because I'm encountering the object, but it's not having the impact on me that it should, or it could go somewhere else. And that's what she's going to explore. And what's really important about this is she's showing how it's political. You know, she's tapping into this feminist sentiment from the 60s and 70s, the personal is political. So it's these very interior things that we think of as our own, rage, happiness, unhappiness, sadness, personal feelings. And she's showing how they're completely related to this bigger structure, these cultural narratives, these expectations that are placed on us that are not about our internal selves at all and how they produce these affects or how the affect alien is produced in these scenes. Okay, so in the next paragraph, she continues on to talk more about the feminist as an affect alien. Do you want to take us into that one? She says, the feminist is an affect alien estranged by happiness. 
We can understand the negativity of the figure of the feminist killjoy much better if we read her through the lens of the history of happiness, which is at once the history of associations. Feminists, by declaring themselves feminists, are already read as destroying something that is thought of by others not only as being good, but as the cause of happiness. The feminist killjoy spoils the happiness of others. She is a spoil sport because she refuses to convene, to assemble, or to meet up over happiness. In the thick sociality of everyday spaces, feminists are thus attributed as the origin of bad feeling, as the ones who ruin the atmosphere, which is how the atmosphere might be imagined retrospectively as shared. A feminist colleague says to me she just has to open her mouth in meetings to witness eyes rolling as if to say, oh, here she goes. <laughs> okay, so this one seems so significant, especially because I would say if there's any term, and you could correct me, but if there's any term that has become associated with Sarah Ahmed, it would be feminist killjoy. Absolutely. This is something that we just kind of assume was a term that was always circulating but in fact it was Ahmed that put it on the tables it's an amazing contribution all right so what's going on with that term thinking about this paragraph that is discussing the feminist as an affect alien uh the negativity of the figure of the feminist killjoy so what she's saying is in this whole discussion of critiquing happiness essentially that's what feminists are always doing so feminists are always pointing out this social structure these cultural narratives and interrupting them and saying hey hang on a minute should we think of the wedding day as the happiest day of a woman's life? Can we think about motherhood differently? Can we think about work-life balance differently? And that's what, that's literally feminist critique. And so she's saying in doing that, in making that critique, feminists become killjoys. They're killing the joyful narrative. So that's part of being a feminist. And what she is suggesting is essentially reclaiming that. So being like, yeah, I am a feminist killjoy and that's a good thing. And she's also giving some explanation to how when feminists raise these critiques in different scenarios, they become the problem. So this thing that we were talking about earlier, which is in raising the problem, you become the problem. So you, you become seen as the origin of the bad feeling, even if you're really just pointing out something that's quite terrible. And people might roll their eyes at you or be like, oh, here we go again. Here's another gendered critique. And I really feel like anyone that's ever been a feminist killjoy will be extremely familiar with this sentiment of people being kind of exasperated by you constantly raising critique. And it, it seems such a powerful counter to that wave of kind of a happy version of, of feminism, right? Where, oh, it's good for everyone and we can sell it in this way that is easily consumable. And she's coming along and saying, no, actually embrace the power of making people feel uncomfortable and making people pause. Absolutely. This is the opposite of lean-in feminism, which I have seen people teach at university, by the way, which I find very questionable. So she's really saying this isn't about leaning into existing systems and just figuring out how to do well in those systems. This is about absolutely undermining and abolishing and destroying these systems. That is our task as feminists. So she's presenting an extremely different kind of feminism. And I, I don't want to get too sidetracked in the question of what the Delusian would say about her use of affect. But I do think there's something really important in that last sentence that you read, where it's not just the feminist colleague correcting someone else in the department meeting. It's just occupying that space that shifts this kind of feeling or this energy that's moving between people. 
Yeah, that's a really interesting way of looking at it. It's this kind of atmosphere that you've disrupted and caused a different kind of feeling in the room. So you can imagine the scenarios, you know, a meeting where everyone's got together to talk about some new hire, for example, and then the feminist says, hang on, like this person isn't, you know, they seem to be representing problematic views or we didn't really consider these other candidates in kind of an affirmative action way. And then that mood is destroyed. The happy atmosphere of we selected the right person or or so on, you know, is disrupted. It doesn't exist anymore. And you've caused this other sensation in people, discomfort, you've caused anger, perhaps you've interrupted the happiness of other people. All right, let's continue on. So where are we heading next? So page 592, I think it's the last one. Okay, so so pretty big jump then. Yeah, yeah. All right, so 592. I would say, you know, on that point that we were just talking about, and this is important for this next bit that I'm going to read, you know, she's really turning that gaze of being comfortable with discomfort, embracing the killjoy as something that feminists need to do in their own spaces as well. So she talks about this history of black women in particular coming into feminist spaces in second wave feminist organizing and feeling really alienated by those spaces that were dominated by white women. And that hearing critiques from black feminists is really important for other feminists to take on board. So you can be a killjoy in those spaces too. And the point is that you need to embrace that as a feminist. So you need to be willing to accept those critiques of the happy feminist spaces as well. So the paragraph starts on the bottom of 591. Do you mind starting uh, the reading there? Yes. Perfect. Okay. You cause unhappiness by revealing the causes of unhappiness, and you can become the cause of the unhappiness you reveal. In becoming an unhappiness cause, one can certainly be affected unhappily. People often say that the struggle against racism is like banging your head against a brick wall. The wall keeps its place, so it is you who gets sore. Struggling against racism means being willing to labour over sore points. Not only do we need to labour our points as a labouring over sore points, but we also might even need to stay as sore as our points. Of course, that is not all we say or we do. We can recognise not only that we are not the cause of the unhappiness that has been attributed to us, but also the effects of being attributed as the cause. We can talk about being angry black women or feminist killjoys. We can claim those figures back. We can talk about those conversations we have had at dinner tables or in seminars or meetings. We can laugh in recognition of the familiarity of inhabiting that place. There is solidarity in recognizing our alienation from happiness, even if we do not inhabit the same place and we do not. There can be joy in killing joy and kill joy we must and we do. Okay, so there's this another every one of these. There's so much going on. Um, where do you want to start with this one? And then I've got a, a big connection to make that I'm curious if it is a correct reading. Sure. I mean, that last sentence, there can be joy in killing joy and kill joy. We must and we do. I feel like I chant that to myself every day. <laughs> like, honestly, that is burnt into my brain. So really, the key bit for me is the last two sentences and where she says there's solidarity in recognizing our alienation, even if we do not inhabit the same place and we do not. She's saying, look, this isn't like the guide to feminism that erases intersectionality, right? We're not occupying the same intersections, but we can have some common ground as feminists in recognizing 
that we challenge these happiness scripts. So she's presenting this case for how we can come together and work towards that goal of dismantling happiness scripts and putting the hat back into happiness. And that can be joyful. You know, we can find this kind of sense of joy in the comradeship of killing joy, but it doesn't mean we have to erase those intersections. This isn't going to be at the expense of recognising that we are not necessarily coming from the same places as feminists, which is so important. And what's really interesting, if, if people really love this, uh, this reading and particularly that passage, it's really the precursor to one of her later books called Living a Feminist Life, which she wrote in 2017. And that really expands this point of solidarity and offers a manifesto for feminism. And she talks a lot about what solidarity means in that book. Yeah, so I think that what she's really saying here is that we think about this history of women of colour in feminist spaces kind of interrupting feminist joy. That means that we need to be careful about how we think about solidarity so that we don't erase that disruption. All right, so I'm going to do that thing that is sometimes wonderful, but sometimes challenging in the classroom, where you read something and then the student brings up another example, then you're like, well, that's kind of right, but maybe, let's think about it. Right before I called you, I was looking online and I saw some people posting about a protest that had happened just yesterday in Rochester, where people in support of the Black Lives Matter movement marched from downtown and then occupied the interstate ramp to disrupt traffic. And there was a plan to do this again this coming Friday. And I saw some people posting, well, you know, we support their cause, but why can't we just have happy, peaceful protests? Mm. People are trying to get to work. And I can't help but thinking about the power of revealing unhappiness and then how people then suddenly just say, we agree with you, just don't disrupt, just do it in the way that's supposed to have that happy movement. So is, is that making sense? Are there yeah. some connections there, even though we're shifting scale? No, I think that's a fantastic example. I think that you have this sense that protesters in the Black Lives Matter movement are the source and cause of unhappiness, this is how it's presented in mainstream media, rather than, you know, police brutality and systemic racism as the cause of unhappiness, which is absurd. And Ahmed's point goes directly to this. So I think that it's a really good example. I think it's complex in the specific example that you just offered, because what is being interrupted in that particular scene isn't just a happiness script. It is the material realities of other working class people who are trying to go to work. So I think that that is a more complicated situation where you're not just interrupting a script and an expectation, which of course the protester is doing, but they're also causing this disruption to someone who could be a fellow comrade in recognizing unhappiness and mm. coming to the protests for Black Lives Matter. I'm not saying that you shouldn't do that, but I just think it's not exactly mappable onto this. Yeah, and it's really interesting how there even becomes a script for the happy protester, right? Because in a sense, they're saying, we support you when you're the protester who simply goes to the designated spot downtown and everyone chants and there's music and I can come join you and get that uplifting feeling and then go home and not actually feel disrupted at all. Yeah, and I think it's one of the things that has been quite effectively pointed out in a lot of the protest movement circulating on Instagram and other social media sites is, hey, white allies, you need to sit with this discomfort. You can't just, you know, there's just not a happy way to be an anti-racist. You need to 
hear what we're saying about unhappiness and listen and take it on board and feel uncomfortable with your own white supremacy and challenge it, right? Yeah, and, and become a killjoy in other spaces. Yeah. All right, one extra question. Would you be willing to look at the final paragraph of the reading also? Yeah. The example that we just talked about wouldn't be a nice place to end, but I really like the final paragraph and I'm also confused by the final paragraph. <laughs> so I, would, <laughs> I think it would be fun to, it would be a fun way to work through, wrap up the argument that she's making, especially the very first section of it, I find really fascinating. She says, I now think of political movements as hap movements rather than happiness movements. It is not about the unhappy ones becoming the happy ones. As I have suggested, revolutionary forms of political consciousness involve heightening our awareness of what there is to be unhappy about. Yet this does not mean that unhappiness becomes our political cause. In refusing to be constrained by happiness, we can open up other ways of being, of being perhaps. The word perhaps shares its hap with happiness. We can get from the perhaps to the wretch if we deviate at a certain point. One definition of the wretch is a poor and hapless being. I would say that those who enter the history of happiness as wretches might be hapful rather than hapless. To deviate from the paths of happiness is to refuse to inherit the elimination of the hap. Affect aliens, those who are alienated by happiness are creative. Not only do we want the wrong things, not only do we embrace the possibilities that we are asked to give up, but we can create life worlds around these wants. While we might insist on the freedom to be unhappy, we would not leave happiness behind us. We would aim to put the hap back into happiness. So I love this paragraph. I think it's incredible, especially just listening to you read it. It's almost like a, a bedtime story that I could listen to. <laughs> but there's so much wordplay in there. And I, I'm just curious if there's anything, especially the two parts that stick out to me are one, this idea that in refusing to be constrained by happiness, we can open up other ways of being of being perhaps. And then that final line, we aim to put the hat back into happiness. And I know you talked about this a little bit earlier, but can you remind me what that idea is, putting the hat back in happiness, what she's trying to signify there? So she's talking about hap in terms of happenstance or possibility. So it's instead of having this discrete path of happiness where it's all mapped out, it's a script, you know, the nuclear family, you know, you get married, you have children, you have a job and you retire and like this script of happiness and how you're meant to feel at every point in your life. She's saying we need to question that script and put this happenstance back in. So it's like, well, who knows what you should do? <laughs> like when she says we can create life worlds around these wants, it's like, what if we had different ways of organizing family, kinship, you know, queer kinship? What if we thought about raising children differently? What if the happiest day of our life was multiple days and not around who we are partnered with? You know, like there's all these possibilities when you question that script. And a really useful person to read Ahmed and this particular article with is Lauren Ballant. So I'm not sure if people listening are already familiar with Lauren Ballant, but she wrote a book called Cruel Optimism, where she talks about this kind of optimism that circulates culturally that is toxic. So this assumption that things will get better, that we're signed up to this system, you know, the American dream in America, <laughs> and we believe in it, we just have to believe in it. And actually believing in it and propping up this system and continuing with this system is really toxic to us. It's actually damaging us. And really, we should 
essentially, you know, destroy capitalism is the subtext. And you can read her with Ahmed here saying, what if we challenge this script, this cruel script, this cruel optimism, this cruel history of happiness, expectations of happiness? And what would happen? We would have all of these alternative possibilities, these alternative political arrangements, alternative economic systems. And that's what she's proposing. All right. That is a perfect place to end. And you also effectively set it up that in probably two months, I'm going to be emailing you and saying, would you, <laughs> would you be willing to come back and read from Cruel Optimism? But we'll see then. And you can ignore the email if you want. <laughs> but thank you again for joining. I'm glad you gave me a reason to go back and read this. Well, I did have one thing I just wanted to point out to listeners and students in particular who are reading this. Just It's really important to think about the time period this was published. So 2010 and presumably, you know, Ahmed spent a little while on this writing it before 2010 that period of time you know feminism was only just making a comeback I was teaching gender students at that time and most of them were reluctant to identify as feminist so we take mainstream feminism for granted now but this was coming at a time where it really wasn't that mainstream yet and one marker of that, we didn't have Beyonce's album that really put a lot of feminist sentiment on the map until 2013. So this was three years before Beyonce's album. So I think that it's just really useful to keep that in mind, that this was a really radical suggestion, the feminist killjoy. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a perfect point, especially if, say, you're a student who's 18 years old when you're reading this. That's It's almost half your life, right? Yeah. So to realize how quickly those changes have taken place... Beyonce is a perfect marker. <laughs> and now Taylor Swift is claiming the yes. feminist, right? So there's pretty rapid shifts. And it was definitely, 2010 was absolutely a time when celebrities used to say, I'm not really comfortable with the term feminist. Thank you again for joining. Good luck with everything this semester. Appreciation goes to Jeffrey Gilbert for providing our theme music, undergraduate sociologists Beth Heberger, Alicia Rios, and Simone Graham for their help with the project. And most importantly, on behalf of me, Kyle Green, Thank you for giving theory a chance.